Well, we are continuing uh, in our study in the book of Esther, one of two books in the Bible that do not mention God by name. What's the second? Well, that can be your little trivia assignment you got to work on. You're all like, Google, 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 Google. But uh, a very fascinating story as we've been following it. Uh, we left last week where uh, this individual named Haman, a longtime hater of the Jewish people, had risen to second in command in the Medo-Persian Empire, and these events are happen happening about 500 B.C., so about 500 years before the birth of Christ, just to give you a little context. And, and, and he had got the king convinced that it would just be a great idea to absolutely annihilate all the Jewish people, and actually had the edict written and signed with the king's signet ring and published all over the empire. And that is where we left off last week. Today we jump in to chapter 4, and we are finding uh, Esther... She's in one of these moments, uh, I just call them the who me moments. You know those moments? Who? Me? Me? Who? Me? Really? Those moments where there's something, put, a challenge put in front of you, an invitation for you to step up uh, into a different space, and uh, you know, or the conviction of God upon you, and you're like, who? Me? No, no. We've all had those in life. And I remember one as a 16-year-old kid, uh, my first ministry experiences uh, were at a Christian camp, and I showed up to work for the summer and was all ready to go, just kind of do something somewhere, and just loved it, had so much fun. And the guy who was kind of determining all those places that, that you're going to be serving, he says to me, hey, you are going to be our maintenance crew team leader. And I kind of looked around, I was wondering, I was like, who is he talking to? I, I haven't led anything in my life. I can't even get myself out of a paper bag if I got put in it. What do you mean, do you mean? I'm the crew team leader? I don't even know what that meant. And that's what, I, that's what he said I was today. I think you got the wrong guy. It was my little Moses burning bush moment. A little less significant, I get it. But, you know, anyway, it was mine for what it's worth. And, and I was like, no, wrong guy. No, you, I'll help that guy. Who's that guy? I'll help him. It isn't me. He says, no, it's you. Oh, who, me? Yeah. And I remember looking back, God using that as an instrumental moment in my life to prepare me for that calling to enter into ministry. Isn't that something? All that to say, these who, me moments are huge, huge in our lives, in our journey with the Lord. The moment when the, the shoulder that's on our body gets tapped. Who? Who? Me? This is Esther's who, me moment. What will she do? What's, what's gonna, how, how is this all going to roll out? Now, I, I know, I'm confident you all have been reading ahead, just like we talked about that first week, and you got it all in there. Well, today, we're just going to look at the first 12 verses, where the full reality of her who-me moment is set in, and the rest of that chapter 
We're going to leave for next week. Um, one of our, our deacons is going to handle that. And I am having an absolute brain. Jared Tyler, thank you. Jared, forgive me if you're watching or here. Is Jared here? Don't tell him I forgot. Okay, we got it. He's uh, also a minister, and he's going to finish this chapter for us next week. So, awesome. Here we go. Verse 1, chapter 4 of Esther. We are seeing the people of Israel, the Jewish people, responding to the news that a edict has been issued by King Xerxes to eliminate all of them in a date set about 11 months into the future. How would you respond? When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he, he tore his clothes and he put on burlap and ashes and he went out into the city crying with a loud and bitter wail. He went as far as the gate of the palace, for no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while wearing clothes of mourning. Apparently, the king didn't want any sad people around him. And as news of the king's decree reached all the provinces, there was great mourning among the Jews. They fasted, they wept, and they wailed. And many people lay in burlap and ashes. When Queen Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was deeply distressed. She sent clothing to him to replace the burlap, but he refused it. Then Esther sent for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed as her attendant, and she ordered him to go to Mordecai and find out what was troubling him and why he was in mourning. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the square in front of the palace gate. Mordecai told him the whole story, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai gave Hathak a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all Jews. He asked Hathak to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. He also asked Hathak to direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Hathak returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. So he was getting a little workout here, one back and forth, back and forth. He said, then Esther told Hathak, go back. And reply or relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. And so Hathak gave Esther's message to Mordecai. Pause. This story, obviously, in chapter 3, took a very dark turn. And we find, and I don't know how in the world you and I could ever do this, but to try to put 
ourselves into the shoes of the Jewish people who have just been told that they, they are all from all the way up from Palestine, all the way through into Persia, Babylon, every single one of you are going to be wiped out, destroyed, eliminated, wiped off the face of the earth. Your family, your parents, your kids, your grandkids, cousins, nieces, nephews, all around the world. A death sentence now hangs over their heads. What would you do? Very naturally in this moment, we see the response of Mordecai and the Jewish people. They mourned. They grieved. They wept. They fasted. They wailed put on burlap and and threw ashes all over and laid in them and grieved and sorrowed and cried out to God. There's a message here that some of us need to hear. Grieving is very appropriate in the moments of life where there are divinely permitted difficulties. Grieving is appropriate. Grieving is right. Grieving is good. Sadly, we live in a world at times that wants to put the grieving person, you know, kind of get them out of the way. I don't want to hear it. You make me uncomfortable by your sadness. Your tears are unsettling. And so sorrow gets stuffed. And what happens, here I am, my heart is already broken at whatever the difficulty may be, and then I try to stuff sorrow inside of it, and it fractures the already broken heart. What is the message of of, of the word, of the example of Jesus to the grieving, by the way, all of us will enter into sooner or later. Jesus, in the graveyard of his friend Lazarus, and he knew full well in just a few minutes he was going to call his friend right out of the grave. And yet there in that moment with Lazarus' sisters there, the, the, the wailing, the grieving, the sorrow, the, the, the pain that, that they were experiencing, the, 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 knowing Lazarus had gone through the sickness unto death, and Jesus in that moment broke and wept and wailed and cried out to God, weeping, wailing, shouting, crying. And those around him said, oh, look how much and how deeply he loves. It is right, it is good, and it is appropriate. No, we weren't made to stuff our sorrows. We weren't made to paint on a happy face and a stiff upper lip. We're made to weep and to grieve and to 
cry. And we were made to not do that alone. We should never cry. We should never celebrate by ourselves. It's part of what being a family is about. Those of us here in the midst of grieving, I encourage you to take advantage of this grief group that's going to get started. I've been praying for years for something like this to be available, sitting with so many with your tears and crying with you. And um, this is a great opportunity, a great opportunity to enter into that with others. Grieving is appropriate in the divinely permitted difficulties of life. Verse 5 through 9, we see something absolutely staggering take place. It's just, I, I just kept reading it, and I kept reading it, and I said, are you kidding me? Um, hear hear this, this edict goes out to all the provinces of Xerxes' empire announcing the date of the annihilation of the, all the Jewish people. And Mordecai responding as we would expect, and all the people of Israel responding in the same way. Now when Esther hears about him mourning and wearing a burlap and sitting in ashes, she's like, oh, that's not good. Hey, somebody get him a new pair of clothes. Maybe... Maybe he just, you know, had a bad business deal go wrong and he's broke and he can't afford anything. Take him a new pair of clothes. Completely oblivious to the reality of the entire nation of Israel. There she is in the very palace, the very palace where the edict to destroy all of her people, including her, is written and stamped with the king's signet ring. And she has zero clue. No clue. What's going on? Why is everybody crying? What's the big deal? So many times in our lives, as we see the reality of hers, maybe some uh, 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 of her responsibility and some just the reality of her situation as the queen in this palace, she was isolated. And isolation dulls our attentiveness. Isolation dulls our attentiveness to the world around us and to the part that God is asking us to play. When, when, the, when the enemy of our souls can get us off to the side somewhere else where our faith isn't being challenged and pushed, where, where differences of opinions drive deep canyons between people who both love Jesus. Places where isolation and being set apart take place that our, our faith dulls. And we, in 2020, we experienced just the awfulness of having to be isolated. 
Maybe I, I, it was awful for me. How about I just say that? And, and, here, and here we see in the story of Esther a person who is so isolated and so out of touch with the reality around her, she doesn't even know that she's under the death sentence. She doesn't even know why her adopted father is out there weeping and crying and wailing and sackcloth and ashes. She has no clue. It's isolated, insulated from all that was happening. And he, Mordecai, got her attention. Got her attention. Oh, I love the Mordecais in my life. Hey, wake up, Tom. Pay attention. How many people all around you are without Christ today? Wake up. Wake up. People without Jesus have no hope of heaven. None. Do you care? The judgment of God rests on the sinfulness of humanity that is uncovered by the blood of Jesus. Do you care? Do you weep? Do you wail? Does it bother you? Or are you so isolated and so insulated? I don't even notice. I love the Mordecais in my life who remind me. <clears throat> wake up. Wake up. See, we can't be used by God to change the world while we're in hiding. We can't we can't love another person from a distance. Loving like Jesus is loving like embracing humanity, setting aside whatever privileges or rights or whatever and coming alongside people in desperation and being a tool in his hands to share the love and the life and the light of Jesus. It's loving like this, and she was isolated. She was not paying attention or was not afforded the privilege of knowing what was happening. Everybody in the kingdom knew except her. It's time, as I was reading that and just puzzling over it, I was having that time with the Lord, and he was challenging me, Tom, drop the fears, drop the excuses, drop the I'm too busies. See, the enemy of the best is never the worst. You've heard this many times, right? The enemy of the best is all the good. There's this, this good, this is 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 good. And I got so much good, I got no room for the best. I'm functionally isolated from the purposes of God and the plans for eternity to be touched through my life through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see? Mmm. It's time. Drop all that. 
and embrace the adventure. Time to step into the footsteps of Jesus. Say, okay. Okay, I, 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 I'm ready. I want to be a part of something so much bigger than myself. I want to be a part of that bigger story from Genesis to Revelation, the story of God at work redeeming, creating, man falling, God sending his redeemer, God's redeeming work, and one day the return of my Savior. I want to be a part of that story, and I want my life to take its place, and I can't, and I won't. I isolate myself from the people and the purposes and the plans and the promises of God. Esther got the message loud and clear. Mordecai even made sure. And by the way, here's the edict. Read it so you know. So you know. With the message and Esther Stand up for your people. Get in front of the king. Beg for mercy. Verses 10 through 12. Esther receives this message from Mordecai now knowing exactly what is going on and what her adopted father has has beseeched her to do. She sends back this message. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter and the king is not called for me to come to him in 30 days. And so Hathak gave Esther's message to Mordecai. Did you hear it? Who? Me? Me? Mordecai, I don't think you get the picture. Let me help you. You see, there's this law. And if you come into the king's presence uninvited, well, a bag goes over your head and you disappear, never to be seen again. Or he can extend the gold scepter and receive you into his presence. This is one of those flips of irony in the story, and there's so many. The first queen was deposed. Why? Because she was invited into the king's presence and wouldn't come. This queen may not survive the day by coming into the king's presence when she was not invited. That's amazing. You see it all over in this story. So what was she saying? Who, me? And here we run straight into another reality and what it means to follow Jesus that too many of us, including Mr. Wonderful here, have a very hard time embracing. Maybe you have this struggle too. The risks associated with doing the right thing do not make the right thing wrong did you catch that the risks of doing the right thing never make the right thing wrong 
And sometimes in life, we're saying, well, Jesus, if I follow you, I see where your steps are going, and that's going to hurt. There's some, there looks like there's some struggle. There looks like there may be some sacrifice. I may have to give something up. I may have to adjust my life in certain ways, give, redirect my time, redirect my energy, redirect my resources. I've kind of got it all figured out, and that looks like a cost to me. Certainly, Jesus, if this is a hard thing, or here in this situation, a potentially life-losing thing, it's not from you. For Jesus, you would never ask that. If any would be my disciple, Jesus said, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. He who holds on to their life will lose it. But he or she who loses their life for me will find it. Do we believe that? Sometimes we, we read what Jesus says and we, we just kind of go, eh, and move on. What is he saying? Everything is surrendered. And we're called to offer our lives up as a living sacrifice which is holy and acceptable to God and it is only such because of the shed blood of Jesus aren't we glad that he took seriously the father's call on his life when it involves sacrifice his life his life to save our lives oh when he calls there's risks will be put in this moment of who me will be in a crisis of belief, a crisis of faith. What do I really believe about God? What do I really believe about his word? Do I really believe that Jesus, as we heard earlier, is the one who is in charge of all things, the one who is without measure the most intelligent and wise and powerful person anywhere, ever, for always, or not. What do we really believe? And this story here pushes us right up against the wall. There's no way to get around it. What do I believe? What do I believe? Because you see, following in the footsteps of Jesus leads straight to a cross. Where he died. And he says, you die. Oh, oh, but be of good courage. I've overcome this world, and I've overcome death, and I've overcome sin, and in my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going to come get you, and you're going to be with me where I am. Paul, looking at the reality of eternity in view, the big picture, the bigger story, and he would say about all of his suffering, all of his beatings, all of his imprisonments, everything he endured for Christ, and he said, I count those as nothing. That's this little 
pity stuff compared to the knowledge of knowing Christ and the glory that awaits. Oh, I pray, oh God, please give me a faith like that. Help me to grow. So often in the word and in prayer, I feel like such a little baby, a little sissy who doesn't want to be disturbed and who likes to have things just the way he likes them and I don't want to be uncomfortable. What about you? Too many Jesus followers, at least claiming to be Jesus followers, are not following Jesus because it's costly. Why did Jesus say count the cost? Why didn't? Why did he say that? We must adjust our lives to join God in what he is doing. He is at work calling lost sheep home. He's prepared good works for his children to do that nobody else can do. The banquet table is set. And, and all over it is all the things that are going to touch eternity for, for us in our lives to experience the power and the, and, the, and the movement of God and to see things happen that only he can do to be right in the middle of people moving from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light for, to see people breaking free from addictions, families and marriages restored and the power of God enabling people to forgive and to love one another as Jesus loved them. It is only the power of God in the life of those who say, Jesus, here I am, send me. Send me. I'm yours. All costs. All costs. And that table that's set with all the things God has in store has a chair our names on the chair there's only one question left isn't there am I going to take my place at the table am I going to link arms with all the heroes of faith who have understood from the beginning that we are born into a battle it's a spiritual battle put on your armor Paul would say Get your armor in place. We're not battling for the things of this old world. No. We're battling for the eternal souls of men and women and young people and kids. It's a fight worth fighting. It's a fight worth dying for. And we don't need to look any further than the apostles themselves. All save one were martyred a relatively young age. Why? Because they proclaimed the good news of Jesus and it cost them their lives. Today, all around the world, in oppressive situations, brothers and sisters who are Jesus followers are being imprisoned, being slammed into, into these deep, dark holes never to be seen from, ripped from their homes, families separated, property stolen, and and. 
It, it, why? Because <laughs> I love Jesus. And I thought to myself on too many occasions, Tom, if somebody stormed into your house, guns blazing, renounce Jesus or die, what would I do? We look at the story, the build-up to Esther's decision. We see grief as part of the story. We see um, how easy it is to get disconnected from the reality of what's going on and get isolated. And we see that there is a moment where we will stand in our lives, multiple moments where we will be asked, do I really believe what Jesus has said, who he is or not?